In this episode, I interviewed Rachel Jones, who is a sports psychologist who has worked with multiple different levels of athletes and also has her own company, Lift High Performance. In this episode, we discussed some things such as dealing with pressure, how pressure has, uh, what the stress response the pressure has upon the body, uh, mistakes people make under pressure. We also talked about some things of how to manage self-doubt and choking um, with trying to achieve your highest level of performance. And then something um, that's not really talked about as much is kind of dealing with injury, uh, how you mentally deal with injury when you do get injured throughout the season for an athlete, um, and then kind of ways of how it can uh, affect rehab. So not only how to kind of work through it, but it can have a negative impact upon your rehab. And then we also talked about a little bit with dealing with setbacks throughout that uh, injury process and recovery. So how you mentally can deal with those to get the best outcome. And yeah, it's just a great episode, something a little bit different other than just the straight up strength and conditioning or physio, because same as uh, sports nutrition is really important. So is um, sports psychology. So not only do you need to make sure your body's performing correctly, but your mind also has to be performing correctly. So without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to No Weak Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date, evidence-based content and knowledge through your life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, coaches, parents of athletes, or any active person looking to improve their fitness or athletic ability. So please have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to No Week Links. I'm your host, Patrick Wood, and today I have on Rachel Jones, who is a uh, sports and exercise psychologist. And I th- I brought her on because I think um, kind of psychology in the sports setting, sort of like nutrition, is, is something that's slightly underappreciated, um, but has a major role and major impact on athletes. So today we're just going to have uh, Rachel talk about some different topics um, that kind of coincide with this. So first, Rachel, thanks for being on. Um, and if I could just maybe have you introduce yourself a little bit, talk your, uh, maybe about your background, why I got involved in psychology and just your history and experiences. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on. It, it's great to be a part of the podcast. Um, I, I guess my background, um, I got into sports psychology because I really wanted to help athletes to reach their full potential. And then as the journey has grown, that uh, I guess that dream has grown as well um, to look at performers and helping performers kind of looking at that idea that everybody's a performer in some way shape or form but how do we get the best out of ourselves whether that's looking at at mental health or uh and improving mental health or if that's including uh, improving a level of functioning um level of performance or maintaining that elite performer status um so that that's what really drew me to to sports psychology um on the journey to do sports psychology, I did exercise science as well um, and some short stints um, in strength and conditioning uh, in rugby league, which really helped actually um, from a couple of perspectives. I guess being a, a female in a male-dominated environment at the time because there wasn't sort of the opportunities in for, for women in, in rugby league as there are now, which, which has grown incredibly. Um, but... Uh, also from the perspective of, of looking at how high-performing teams function sort of behind the scenes, um, which has certainly helped now going into the psychology side um, from the sports point of view as well. 
Um, so that that's a little bit about my background. Um, once I, I came through, uh, did all the study for sports psychology and exercise science, um, I actually worked for a company for a few years um, and then about three years ago started up Lift High Performance Consultants um, and it, it's been amazing the opportunities that have come out of that and you know working with different teams but with individuals as well across different areas of, of performance has, has been really exciting. Yeah, and you've uh, you've from your, your kind of your bio read you've worked with multiple levels, which has been um, I'm sure uh, really good experience as well, and giving you the opportunity to kind of experience different things from the lower levels or just the um, you know your younger kids all the way up to professional athletes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's value in in terms of what sports psychology can bring at all of those different levels. Um, if you kind of look at that professional level, uh, week in, week out, the differences in performance, uh, apart from injury and fatigue, you, you, you can't say that someone becomes less fit overnight. Uh, and when they perform the next week, that they've lost significant strength and power that they can't perform. So it, it's fair to say that a lot of that change in performance is what happens between the years. So there's yeah. certainly a role there. And then certainly with young people as well, a lot of the strategies that we roll out from a performance perspective are things that they can use in school and things that they can use in everyday life as well as on the field. True. Yeah. And I can definitely test to that with my kind of background in swimming, just knowing that how even mentally a sport can be or how much, yeah, you can use tactics within your sport and real life as well. So I guess if we can kind of first delve into our kind of topic I would like to talk about is just the dealing, dealing with pressure. So I know, um, Sports in general are well, a big stressor for a lot of athletes. So I guess in general, do you have any advice for athletes on how to best deal with stresses, whether that be, you know, just smaller stresses or like big game, you know, they got to make this shot or make this play? Yeah, I, I think the first thing is understanding where the stress is coming from. So what's triggering that stress and oftentimes as well, distinguishing between real and per perceived stress now, that doesn't mean that the stress isn't there, but if we can move that stress um, from a threat to a challenge, then you actually have more resources available to you to, to deal with that. Um, so, so what I mean by that is, is there are two different parts of the brain. Um, there's, uh, in, in layman's terms, there's the stress part of the brain and then there's the smart part of the brain. Um, for those playing along at home who want to know the specific areas, there's the limbic system, which is the, the stress area, which contains a lot of different structures um, within the brain, and then also the prefrontal cortex, which is the, the smart brain, so to speak. Um, and what happens is under stress, if we identify something as a threat, the stress brain acts as a security guard, and it basically goes it, – it's, its number one job is to keep the brain and the body alive. And so if the security guard is activated because it, there's a perceived threat, it will basically override everything else because thriving and performance doesn't matter in that moment. The only thing that matters is survival, which is not so great when you have to kick the, the winning goal and it's actually a, a more of a threat for you in other ways, maybe not a physical threat, but more of, of a threat in other ways to miss that goal. 
So being able to turn that into a challenge where you can actually access that smart brain and make really good decisions and follow your process. So it might be a specific kicking routine um, that you do. Uh, basically, the idea is to, to activate that part of the brain so you get your brain out of the way, so to speak, and you can simplify things and come back to what works. So one of the biggest challenges with that um, is that in those big performance moments or those high-pressure moments, everything looks different, feels different, sounds different, but the goal is actually exactly the same as when the pressure isn't there. The goal is to win or to score or to to be the fastest. Um, so that doesn't change in the actions or the recipe to do that don't change either. Um, so I, I guess that that's kind of a, a starting point for helping to manage pressure um, and things that different people can keep in mind. I had a question kind of coming off that um, with you, you're saying you kind of have that part that causes that stress response. So um, which might cause you to miss that goal or something is, do you know, or um, how much about is that even the kind of a physiological response? Cause I know with um, even with swimming, if I were to kind of be get re- too nervous for a race, I would, you know, I could tighten up within the race. Um, and then like, I, you know, I'd feel like uh, my, everything was led. And then from there on out, my performance would just decrease. So um, could you also, I mean, is that also re- related to that physiological response as well? Yeah, 100%. So the um, parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system are linked to those different parts of the brain and the response uh, is, is connected. So, for example, um, gymnasts that I work with who get really tense um, when they're feeling really nervous and the stress part of the brain is activated, obviously it's a lot harder for them to execute their skills and it and it's counterintuitive because what the brain actually needs is to is for you to be more relaxed um, in that high pressure situation same with jockeys as soon as they get tense the horse get ten, gets tense underneath them as well um, and so everybody's risk then increases as well because the horse is more likely to be to go into that fight or flight response with the stress brain as well yeah okay and then what about some maybe mistakes people make with um, dealing with pressure is there anything that you see commonly done that you think is kind of the opposite of what should be done or just any other advice around that yeah i think one of the biggest myths out there is that you have to feel good to perform well Um, that's not actually the case. And in fact, more and more in sports psychology, we're going towards regardless of what you're feeling, how do you let those feelings show up and still perform at your best? Um, So still feel the anxiety, still know that that fear's there, but manage that physical response and also manage the threat level. So you're turning that into a challenge and you're accepting those feelings and you're making space for them to show up rather than having to invest so much emotional energy um, in trying to change that feeling or get rid of that feeling, which is actually quite exhausting. Mm. Uh, So that's definitely one of the the biggest... um, mistakes I guess that that people make around performing under pressure Um, another thing that I see a lot of is that people put 
pressure upon pressure. Um, so they create more pressure for themselves in what is already a high pressure situation. So it might be, <clears throat> excuse me, them, it might be that they make assumptions about what other people are thinking um, or not wanting to let the team down or um, just expecting themselves uh, to be. Uh, the best every time rather than actually allowing themselves to be the best. Uh, and a lot of that comes from having a, a, an outcome instead of a process outcome, uh, a process focus, sorry. Um, so the difference between an outcome focus and a process focus is you can't control the outcome or the result. So the more you think about that, the more pressure you put on yourself and the more you focus on something that you can't control. So the more you feel under threat and the more anxious that you feel and you more, the more that security guard is activated in your brain. Whereas if you have more of a process focus, um, if you think of the process like the recipe to execute well, uh, the more you focus on that, the more likely the outcome is to happen because you have control over that aspect uh, in, in terms of what you can do. So, for example, if, if you think about swimming, uh, you may have the race of your life, you may execute the process to a T, you may swim a world record time, but that doesn't mean you get the gold medal because the person in the lane next to you, it's dependent on what they do, which is outside of your control. So they may also break the world record, but by a fraction of a second faster than you did, and so they get the gold. Now, does that mean that you had a bad race? Not at all. You had an amazing race and and recorded an incredible time. It's just that they did as well. Mm. And they just hit the wall just fraction of a second before you. Um, so focusing on the process actually gives you that sense of control and helps you to come back to, well, I know how to execute regardless of how uncomfortable this feeling is or this situation is. Mm. Yeah, that's good. And so I've kind of, not that I'm definitely a mastered in this at all but just kind of from experience and what people have told me during my kind of athletic career maybe can we it sounds kind of similar to like mindfulness as in kind of dealing with i guess i'm tell me if i'm describing this wrong but dealing with the pressures or being present in the moment and kind of understanding yourself then is kind of what you're saying too is like control you can now and then the pressure um should be able to come off as much because you just let go of the things you can't control is that kind of yeah. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of what mindfulness actually is, because I think there's some um, myths around what it actually is. But the most complete and purest definition is paying attention to the present moment on purpose. So it's really, it's not meant to be a feel-good exercise. It's actually a, a focus and an attention exercise uh, to bring your focus back into the moment. And it's actually meant to be a simple focus on a couple of cues. And in fact, if, if you think about coming back into the moment or switching on that smart brain, uh, I usually describe a two-step process and that's reset and refocus and so the reset is about grounding yourself back in the moment so giving yourself a physical cue to focus on whether that's focusing on your feet depending on what kind of sport it is you might have time in a break of play to do uh, a couple of mindful breaths just to bring your focus back and to also calm you down physically um, so for example a 
gymnasts in between apparatus would have time to do that. Um, but obviously some other sports, obviously swimming, you can't stop in the middle of the race to take some mindful breaths. (laughs) A little bit, a little bit. Um, so it's finding other cues. So it might be focusing on your feet or it might be counting to 10 in time with your kick, for example, or in time with your stroke, just to ground you back in, in observing the moment. And then the refocus part after that is give yourself an action to focus on. So something that you decided on before, which again is a mindfulness tool, but it gives you an action attached with that as well. So it might be in a soccer game, might be find the ball um, or it might be get into position. So something really simple that once you do that, it's like a domino effect and your body kicks back in and goes, oh, yeah, I know what to do. Um, But it just helps calm your brain down because if you just do the first part and calm your brain down but don't have a plan to follow that up with then your your security guard goes well you haven't solved the problem and you haven't dealt with the challenge so I'm going to class it as a threat again and I'm going to take over Uh, and that's when we get that unhelpful fight or flight response Mm. and so those are all really good kind of tactics and techniques to deal with some situation like this but I guess something uh, a question I have uh, kind of branching off of this is how often do you want athletes to practice this because it is probably pretty mentally fatiguing to think about this all the time initially when they start Um, I'm assuming it's sort of kind of like an exercise you know the better you or the more you do it the better you get at it and the less I guess effort it takes is that is that right or kind of mm-hmm. what are your how do you kind of go about that of here's all these exercises to do don't do them all at once maybe and then or how do how do you kind of go about that yeah so we usually only focus on uh, one to two exercises a week and then we try and tie them into activities that they're already doing uh, if you think about training the brain in the same way that you train the body so you need consistent practice but you also need context specific practice as well so um, I get frustrated sometimes because a lot of sports have a mindfulness session and I'll, I'll talk to athletes who say yeah I'm really good at mindfulness we do it one hour a week where we lay on our backs in a in a dark room and you know the light the lights are out there's no noise in the background and we practice doing it there but then my next follow-up question is so do you know how to use this on the field do you know how to use this in the pool do you know how to actually apply this to performance or um to if you're experiencing anxiety or panic um off the field or outside of the water as well and oftentimes the answer is no but i i do it um so we need that really specific practice um, associated with what we're trying to work on. So I often uh, encourage my athletes to practice um, if, we, if we're focusing on mindful breathing, if that's their go-to reset, then there's good evidence to show that if you practice that for 10 minutes a day, that can actually change your way of breathing. So it can shift you from a being a chronic mouth breather, which actually puts your whole body under stress and kind of triggers that stress response to to changing to more of a diaphragmatic breathing response which actually shifts you into the parasympathetic nervous system so you're actually starting from a um i guess a a calmer state um so it's easier to then access that under pressure um so i'll often get them to do that for 10 minutes a day and then when they're at training 
So kind of layering the practice over training, just reminding themselves before training maybe what their keywords are associated with their key reset actions. Uh, and then at every we'll sort of pick if, if there's a, a break in play or if it's an end of a set, kind of using that to practice their reset and refocus at those specific points. And then also when they notice that, um, they are feeling under pressure and that stress brain is taking over. So there's both the proactive practice and then the, the reactive practice and then the debrief around that as well. What worked, what didn't, how long did it take you to catch yourself when you were in that stress mode um, and just that reminder that every time they catch themselves, that's a really good thing, not a really bad thing because some athletes kind of go into that, oh, I shouldn't have even got stressed because I'm doing these things. It's like... No, that's great because that's practicing for when you are under more stress, you know how to catch it and bring it back. Yeah, and that's that's a good point of it's not you, – I mean, you can know about it, but until you actually implement it, it might not work as, you know, well. Or Yeah. So I guess we uh, – kind of the next topic is achieving the highest level of performance. And you can go kind of anywhere you want with this, but uh, an idea I had in general – was um, so how like managing self doubt? I feel like a lot of time is the biggest mm-hmm. person in, in someone's way is themselves. With you know they don't think they're good enough, or is there certain tactics you use around that, or is that pretty similar to kind of the pressure ones, or is there anything else in general about kind of achieving highest level of performance that you like to use or implement? Yeah, um, well, definitely the strategies that we spoke about with performing under pressure certainly help and. I think, you know, that's really the difference between people who are good and people who are great performers. Um, You know, good performers can perform really extraordinarily well on a good day, but the great performers are able to perform extraordinarily well if it's a good day, if it's a bad day, if it's hot, if it's cold, if it's raining, if they're tired, you know, they have that ability to be consistent because they know how to perform regardless of how they feel. Um, and, and part of that does come from um, recognising the what makes them successful and being able to replicate that uh, and trust that they can show up um, with those skills regardless of what's going on around them. Um, the analogy I often use is if you think about, you know, a pool, for example, it's it's the same distance, you know, it's the, the goal is to get from one end to the other as quickly as possible. There shouldn't be much difference in terms of what's in the pool, you know, the, the starting blocks, that side of things, um, the stroke that you do, everything outside of that pool is uh, are trimmings like everything that's outside of that is, is just trimmings that that add to the atmosphere add to the environment but those things can't come into the pool or if you think about any any field they can't come into the field and so being able to go okay again it looks different sounds different but it's the same and just focusing on what's happening in the pool or what's happening on the field not easy to do but really powerful Um, And I think as well, you know, you talked about that idea of self-doubts. That's that's quite a a big topic and I guess sort of thinking about it from a a couple of different angles. Um, One is is the idea that often we're quite good at going back and analysing everything we did wrong, but we actually give no attention to what we did well. 
And that actually means that it's like we're missing half of like one side of the coin. So we're, we're actually missing really important information by not accessing what we did well. And that's a big part of consistency as well, because if we can actually pick up what we're good at and what our strengths are um, and what we did well, then we can actually replicate those things the following week and be consistent with doing those things. And then we actually become more confident and have more trust in our ability to then work on the things that we need to work on. Um, So I always encourage my athletes to almost force themselves again as a way of, of training that habit and training that perspective to go, what did I actually do well and what do I want to keep building on from today um, as well as what do I need to improve? Um, also, I think an important distinction is looking at what you can improve is quite different to looking at what you did wrong. Um, it, it's, it, it's important. And you don't want to ignore that side of the coin either and just build on what you did well. You want to actually be really honest with yourself and go, I could keep improving on these things. But the great thing about being human is that we can always improve. There's always something that can be better, um, but it's not, um, yeah, it's kind of a a Mm never-ending thing. Uh, Even if you had a great performance, you can keep improving. Yeah, and I think those are two good points of, one just being like, because I know even when I was when I had confidence, it was a million times easier to perform better. So instilling that was a good, um, definitely a, a good point. Um, and then the other one was just kind of shifting, I guess, the focus is what you were kind of saying from I did this wrong to this is something that I can improve upon. Is that kind of what yeah. you're saying there? Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, if you think about the idea of confidence, um, confidence is not a feeling. It actually comes from a Latin word that means trust. So you're just looking for evidence to go, well, I trust what I can do and I trust in my ability to improve. So I've identified in places that I can get more wins on the board. So if, if I keep improving on these areas, then that's exciting because it means next week's performance is going to be even better versus attacking yourself and, and kind of feeling that sense of shame um, around this is something that I did wrong. Uh, and that's the other aspect of self-doubt is that idea of identity. And when your identity is linked to your performance, that becomes a threat in and of itself because then you start focusing on what you did wrong and then shame comes into the equation and then you start to actually attack your sense of self um, because of a performance you're not happy with. Whereas coming from that place where you can consistently improve um, because you feel more comfortable in who you are and you understand who you are is different to what you do, then you actually have more space to improve your performance uh, in a more effective and healthy way. Oh, yeah, that's, that's definitely a good point as well. And so for, I guess, is there anything that you, kind of any exercises you tell people to do? I know it's really going to be really independent on the person, but like any pre-game recommendations for people to kind of put all this together, Other, if any, if there is anything other specific than the ones we've kind of gone over already? Yeah, I think um, in terms of a, a pre-game routine, I think that's really important to give you some certainty around how you prepare, um, similar to preparing for anything like 
preparing for work in the morning, there are certain things that I know that I do. And, and a lot of people obviously uh, talk about morning routines. Uh, and it's that same sort of idea in terms of preparing for um, a big competition or a big event uh, is knowing what actually works for you. And a really simple exercise that I get all my athletes to do um, is to go uh, think about when you performed really well and go back and review your preparation. What sort of things did you focus on? When did you switch on? When did you actually focus on the, the match or the event or the race? Um, and then think about the same for a not-so-great performance. And then you see the differences between people. So you have some people who um, need to not think about it at all until they actually get to the venue or until they run out for warm-up um, because otherwise they replay it too many times in their head and they're mentally exhausted before they even get out there. Whereas there are others who actually need to take some time uh, to do some mindfulness and, and to actually relax their, their body and their mind, um, come back into the present and actually go over what their plan is um, and give themselves some mental space to do that as well as reviewing some of their strengths to, to give them that confidence and that reminder um, that they have something extraordinary to bring to the table. So I would encourage that. I, I encourage routines, not regimes. I think sometimes athletes can get too ritualistic yeah. and it's like I have to put my right boot on before my left boot, otherwise I'm not going to play well and I have to clap my hands three times. That can actually be damaging and increase anxiety. So it's about shifting those things to go, well, this is when I need to eat because this is when my body responds well to food. This is when I need to make sure that I have everything packed and ready so I don't miss the bus. Um, this is when I need to switch on and think about it so I don't overthink it or underthink it and I feel I rock up feeling prepared and ready to go. Yeah, and I like how you were saying that. You know, it's it's probably going to be a little bit different for everyone as you, you know, some people might yeah. need to focus on focus on it for this long, some people might need a short. So that's also something to take into account that every whatever we're, you know, you're kind of recommending now, there's a kind of span of of the right for each person and um instead of just, you know, this is the one way to do it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I know you you sort of mentioned it as uh I think before with I, I don't know if the, would you classify that as a visual visualization exercise with kind of thinking about things you did right and wrong. Um, is there anything else, or how do you use visualization, um, or do you use it even um, in your practice? Yeah, that doesn't have to be a visualization practice. It it, it really depends again on the individual. I think um, uh, you know visualization is probably one of the most. Uh, underutilized and poorly utilized skills that we have um and i think sometimes you know i've heard recommendations like uh do visualization of performing successfully before you go to bed the night before an event now that's that's like i cringe just thinking about that because i know plenty of my athletes in fact the majority of them if they did that they probably wouldn't sleep particularly well <laughs> Um, and would spend the night just thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking and, and again, using a lot of emotional energy to convince themselves of performing well. Um, so it is quite individualized and there are, in the same way with strength and conditioning, there's 
times you know there there are things that you can work on in pre-season that are different to what you work on in season um, and different to what you work on in off season and I think we need to apply the same things as sports psychologists and make sure that we're not kind of throwing things out and just going well we know visualization works so just try it at some point um, but in in saying that it's it's really really helpful with um, learning new skills and building confidence um, it's great with injured athletes as well who can't practice and there's actually some some really cool um research on the effects uh, of doing visualization when you can't actually do physical practice Um, there's been some really good studies and anecdotal evidence around that as well uh, in terms of maintaining uh, physical abilities by doing visualization Um, but also uh, I use a lot in gymnastics when I've got uh, athletes who are maybe balking at skills and so that just means that instead of doing tricky skills that they would they might have been doing as as recently as last week it's like their brain just kind of blocks them and stops them from doing it right before they execute the skill so by actually visualizing doing the skill it can help them to overcome that block because the brain goes oh I can picture myself doing that and it starts to mentally map what that would look like actually doing that skill Um, so a really effective way to do that is to to create an image in your mind of you actually doing the skill as if you're seeing it through your own eyes rather than if you're watching it watching yourself on tv for example um so there's a couple of ways that you can use visualization but yeah definitely mm. a powerful skill but pick your times yeah, and yeah because pick your times as you're saying with just like you know you're not going to try some crazy new exercise or some crazy new thing before a big game or something because you don't know the the like how that's going to yeah. impact you so if you you know if you're going to try stuff like this make sure you you know as you were saying maybe program it in different seasons or different competitive portions of their um season yeah absolutely so we've kind of covered a lot of the performance side of things with the pressure in achieving highest level of performance. One thing that I was really interested about and I saw that you had some interest in as well is dealing with um, the psychological factors of athletes post-injury. So Mm -hmm. I guess, um, like I said, you're the expert here. So if there's, I guess how, um, trying to think of a best way to phrase this question, just I guess what general advice or how do you approach someone that has either just sustain an injury or someone that's come to you with some issues with an, um, an injury? Yeah, well, I, I guess um, my interest in injury rehab came from when I was uh, working on from the physiological side of things. Um, I got to be a rehab coach for a few years um, and really enjoyed that. Um, but you'd see all sorts of different reactions to different injuries. And obviously when you're um, first responding to someone who might come to to see me with an injury, uh, it really greatly depends on the type of injury. I find that the most challenging injuries for people to to come through tend to be things like back injuries, concussion, um, things like osteitis pubis, the sorts of things that, don't necessarily have uh, a clear kind of progression Uh, and it might be that they suffer a lot of setbacks along the way or, you know, if you think about something like a a stress fracture or a a back injury, sometimes it's a case of the best thing you can do is not do anything. Mm. 
Um, and that's really tough for athletes who are used to getting ahead if they work hard. Um, and so work ethic is kind of their solution to everything. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, you think about something like concussion, oftentimes the harder you work and that's mental energy and physical energy, the worse the symptoms actually get, which then delays your ability to come back. Um, so, uh, my first response um, with someone who is coming to me with an injury is is really gauging their response and giving them space to actually feel what they're feeling. Um, I think I'm making a massive generalisation here, but I think as a, as a whole, a lot of athletes have learnt to kind of just suck it up and move on um, and not to actually acknowledge that, this actually sucks. Um, so, and and I'll often say to athletes as well, you know what? I'd be I'd be more concerned about you if you weren't upset by this and if you weren't disappointed. So, I'm glad that you're feeling that because it means you're being honest and you're actually letting yourself experience that. Because it's a it, it, there's a grieving process associated with that, and obviously it becomes more complicated if it's a career ending injury or if there's uncertainty about whether or when, um, the, that athlete will be back at all. Mm. Um, so, so that's often a, a bit of a challenge too. Uh, so that, that's the first thing that we make space for. But then after that, some of the biggest risk factors around depression, are isolation and hopelessness. So losing that sense of purpose and not having anything to do, um, so often if you think about injured athletes, what's the first thing that happens is they have to stay at home and they have to rest. So they're not attending training sessions, which if, if they do that with their teammates, um, that becomes really tough. Uh, a lot more teams are getting really good at still getting those injured players in and around the group. But again, often they're in the gym while everybody else is on the field, for example, or they might be in the gym while everyone's in the pool or on the track. Um, so, but again, something that teams seem to be more and more conscious of is making sure that they still feel part of the group. Um, so, so that's really important. But also, um, I know of one team a few years ago had an athlete who did their ACL, and so the the team got together and and bought this athlete a dog, um, <laughs> which I thought was a brilliant idea. Um, so the athlete wasn't on their own and had some support there as well and something to focus on. So um, I'm not sure that we can do that for, for all of our athletes, but that would be nice. Um, but yeah, just finding different ways to keep them connected, but also different things that they can focus on as well. Um, so for some injuries, obviously you can do some alternative training and strengthen other areas, but, um, I often encourage those athletes to focus on other things, hobbies, different things they can be working on. Again, some professional teams have gotten really good at finding ways to get them involved from a coaching perspective, or, um, there might be some head office roles and that sort of thing that they can be involved in. So, they're not stuck at home kind of twiddling their thumbs for that whole time. Um, but obviously it's got to be, it's got to make sure that that doesn't interfere uh, with their recovery. Yeah. And that kind of bring back to what you were saying earlier with, instead of just either dwelling on that one incident or dwelling on, I want to get back of kind of understanding and going through the process, um, kind of focusing on that. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So having a, a plan really helps and that helps overcome uncertainty as well. If you've got a bit of a plan moving forward of different things that you can work on so you don't feel like that time is wasted, that's really important. So that includes everything from processing emotions and feeling like you're doing that in a proactive way uh, through to finding other ways to occupy your time but also make your body better as well is really important. Okay. And I know you said you're really interested with the physiological side of how this all works as well. So do you have anything you could talk about maybe with how um, like an injury with an athlete and if they're not coping well enough that it kind of physiologically affects them as well? Yeah, well, there's some pretty cool research around how, you know, when that stress brain that I was talking about before is activated, it actually enhances the experience of pain, especially when pain is seen as a threat. Um, And it also can slow down recovery as well. Um, So, again, being able to shift back into that Um, smart brain mindset and more of that parasympathetic nervous system uh, response can be really helpful as well. Um, So that's where things like your mindfulness and um, uh, separate to relaxation strategies, but relaxation strategies as well can be really helpful and can be a really nice way. Um, I know I had an athlete with concussion uh, a few months ago uh, who was frustrated because they couldn't do anything. Uh, and so we got them doing some mindfulness activities, just short ones, so they weren't overloading um, uh, overloading her brain too much. Um, and that was a way of her feeling like she was in control of her recovery when she wasn't really able to do anything else. Um, so that's one aspect of it. Um, the, the pain response in the body is absolutely fascinating. Like if you think about, uh, context, um, there's a really nice video, um, uh, with Todd Sampson called redesign my brain. And there's a cool segment where he goes to the AIS and, um, one of the coaches down there, uh, attacks him with a training tool, which is like an electrified knife. Um, and the guy describes it, it's brutal. <laughs> it sounds brutal, but the the guy describes that the tool is is designed to create pain, but not injury. And so there's a really big difference between the two, and we need to be able to figure out how to distinguish between the two in our own mind because that gives us an ability to push through the appropriate amounts of pain without pushing through injury and causing worse injury. And if you think about something like um, DOMS, for example, you know, someone who's never been to the gym before and experiences DOMS for the first time (laughs) might actually think that they're injured. And so as a result, doesn't want to go back and train um, because and, and so their experience of that is a lot worse than somebody who goes, oh, this is actually a good thing because I'm sore after working out. So that means I've worked out at the level that I wanted to work out. So they see that as a good thing. And even though it still hurts, it actually physically hurts less because there's a function and there's a context around it. Um, so I, I think that's a really powerful thing as well is how to manage that pain, um, and how to shift that around. So it's, there's a more, um, 
functional way of viewing that as well. Yeah, a couple couple questions off that. Have you ever used because um, like the research you brought up is if someone's not in a mentally great state or state or if they're too stressed about something, then then that does inhibit the recovery or decrease their recovery. Have you ever used? I know it's probably really dependent on the athlete in general, but just you know stating that fact mm-hmm. or making that a point to people kind of help them be like. Okay, maybe I need to, you know, actually give them more motivation to try and change since athletes are pretty motivated in general. Yeah, I I think my focus is really around reducing the barriers to recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think about there's the physiological aspects, but then there's also the behavioral aspects, including adherence to rehab, for example. So um if, if someone's depressed or anxious, they're going to be less likely to adhere correctly to what they need to do in some cases they may uh do too much uh or in some cases they might just check out and not want to do anything at all um so it's about reducing those barriers overall um and part of that is describing well let let's reduce the stress that you're feeling and make this more achievable to do um so you, you get a faster recovery um, and, and that tends to help, um, uh, because often they're quite motivated by whatever gives them a faster recovery. <laughs> true. I, I also like the point you brought up cause I know it's kind of the point that I like as well from more of the strength conditioning physio standpoint of things, um, of if an athlete is injured, you're still going to try and improve them as much as possible, um, when they're injured mm-hmm. on their weaknesses maybe. And so that's something uh, I thought, I like how you brought up that point, which is probably not thought about as much as even if you're doing as much as you can physically to work around your injury, something that's not thought of as much as working on like your, the your kind of mental strength and being able to even go through those exercises that you brought up earlier. Um, and that's a way to get stronger mentally, which is also something I know that's really important in performance. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a fine line between making sure that the athlete doesn't burn out Mm, as well um, because you don't want them to do overtraining in other areas. But, you know, it might be around going, well, you would normally train for three hours on a Monday, so let's even use two of those hours um, uh, in some useful way, shape or form. If I'm working with a professional team, often we've done some assessment before the start of a a season and um, we'll revisit that and go, all right, now we've got a bit more time to work on these specific areas. Let's focus in on those. Um, Or there might be other things that come up along the way as well. Okay. And then you also kind of talked a little bit about um, being able to identify pain versus like kind of working through an injury pain, I guess, not a bad, bad description of it, but kind of the okay pain to feel versus the not okay pain to feel. Um, Is there a certain way that you kind of help athletes distinguish between those two? Or is that just um, hard? (laughs) (laughs) It is hard. And it and it's a fine line, because you don't want to override the pain response. Mm -hmm. Um, But in in some in some events you kind of have to to a point um but you want to still keep that awareness around what your body's saying and i often talk about pain as your body's language to you in the same way emotions are um it's not something to be afraid of it's actually something to to use and to listen to and to be a bit of a curious scientist about your own body 
um, and ask yourself the question, what is my body telling me right now? Um, so the analogy of if, if I'm going for a run and, and I roll my ankle and I the first thing I do is, is test it, can I put weight on it? And that tells me a lot of information straight away and uh, about the severity of the injury right there in that moment, even without any um, physiological expertise, that tells me whether I can walk home or if I'm calling for someone to pick me up, right? Yep. Or if I can run home because maybe it's not severe at all. Mm. Um, so, and then the same thing when I wake up the next morning and I put weight on my ankle again, that tells me a lot of information about how severe that is and what my next steps need to be. True. Um, it, it gets really tough in um, performing arts like ballet where there is a lot of repetitive movements and there is pain associated with that, but then being able to distinguish between soreness because you've used that part of the body consistently over and over again um, and then also... Um, whether that's a developing stress reaction. Mm. Um, so I, I would always encourage athletes to listen to their bodies but use that expert information as well, ask the questions um, and trust the patterns of your body as well uh, to try and make that distinction. Obviously, if it's persistent pain, that's a pretty good sign that you need to go get it checked True. out. Um, yeah. So, so that's sort of some basic guides that we yeah, use. Yeah, I understand. It's a very hard question to probably answer with dealing with pain in general. Um, I yeah. guess uh, a couple more questions here. Uh, for what is your – or how do you um, help athletes that are dealing with setbacks through this rehab process? Is there anything else that you implement that hasn't – that we haven't kind of discussed um, now? Because obviously setbacks are pretty common and, I mean, it's not going to be a linear positive, you know, progress back to sport there's going to it's going to be a little bit of a roller coaster yeah i think i've got some advice i guess for the professionals dealing with that athlete um whether it's recreational or at that elite level um as well as for the athlete themselves um and i think the first thing for the athlete is to have people that they check in with um and that they're honest with in terms of how they're processing that um i think as well uh, what adds to the setbacks is if they have no other outlet and their exercise is kind of their mental health outlet as well. So really making sure that there are other outlets to keep them healthy from that perspective. Um, I think as well, um, resetting new goals as quickly as you can when you have those setbacks is really important. So you still have a bit of a sense of control and that can help with some of that helplessness uh that you might feel if you you get a setback there um and as well like i was talking before about the difference between good and great athletes another difference that i i see a lot anecdotally is that great athletes are able to turn any situation no matter how awful into an advantage um and are able to kind of step back and go well, I didn't want this injury. I didn't. I don't want to ever experience anything like this again. But where can I find the advantage? Um, in in terms of health professionals working with those athletes, I think being clear with communication, but also being wary of giving exact dates. 
Um, I've certainly worked with people recovering from injuries who are very fixated on dates and going, well, I should be. I was told a year, today is a year from my surgery or whatever it is, and why am I not back to full participation in sport? Yeah. What's happened? And, and that creates a lot, of, um, a lot of stress and anxiety and pressure as well. So um, helping manage expectations around that is important but at the same time trying to do that in a way that still creates a sense of control and certainty and that there is a way forward and it's not going to be like this forever, um, but that something that shows improvement. Um, I think with setbacks as well and injuries, just still finding ways to measure improvement is really mm-hmm. important, but um, not measuring how far you are, you are from where you were is really important because you need to establish a new baseline that you're working towards rather than trying to go backwards to where you were because that's always looking at a deficit and a gap rather than looking at, well, hang on, two weeks ago I couldn't even run and now I'm running consistently every day, Um, for example. Um, Yeah. yeah. So that's what I would recommend. Yeah, so instead of going from where I am now to where I want to be, maybe going the other way around of, where I was to where I am now is a way to kind of look at that. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll last question here. I like to ask this. Um, so what would you say your, I guess, biggest pet peeve is or myth that, um, is kind of around sports psychology, um, and kind of a message you like to give people whenever you hear, hear this, uh, non-true fact or opinion. (laughs) Where do I start? I know I, I have contemplate um, sometimes if I should just um, start the show as this question. So <laughs> you could very easily. I I think I think my biggest pet peeve around sports psychology is still not many people know what we actually do, mm-hmm. um, and not in, including professional sporting teams. Um, I just I, we just haven't done a very good job at at explaining what we do. And, and I think as well part of that is what is the difference between us and maybe a welfare person or a life coach? Um, first of all, a, a heck of a lot of qualifications. <laughs> you have a degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so they put us through our paces before we can even call ourselves a, a psychologist to start off with. And I think that's a big myth around sports psychology is actually in Australia where all psychologists and we have to get that qualification first. Um, one, of, one of the myths even in Australian sport is that um, sports psychologists can't actually work with serious mental health issues. But that's actually where our training is. And because we understand the sporting context, we're actually really well positioned to deal with mental health issues in sport. Um, and yet sometimes we're the, the last ones invited to that conversation, which gets a bit frustrating. Um, I, I think the other part of that is that so so we have that psychology qualification first and foremost, but then we have specific training in sport. So sports psychology or sport and exercise psychology is actually a protected title in Australia, which means that um, you have to do over and above the training of a psychologist um, to do specific training in sport, uh, which also includes mental health training 
as part of that as well as the performance training and that involves working with teams and individuals as well um so I think I think that's that's one of the biggest myths um, is people understanding what we do, but also that um, I, I like and, and probably because of my background, I like to liken what a sports psych does to what the strength and conditioning coach can do. Obviously, uh, not an either or situation, but in in terms of how we work. So that idea that uh, it's really helpful if we can set up things from pre-season put some proactive strategies in place um also during the season continue to adjust those things yes it's more of a a maintenance phase you don't want to throw in a lot of information but there are adjustments that need to be made um as you go depending on what's happening um with that team or individual or that squad throughout the season um and then there is the reactive parts to that as well um, so I think a lot of sports kind of, uh, don't think they need a sports psychologist until they need a sports psychologist. And so they kind of describe that as, you know, there's team conflict or we're not performing or we've lost every game of the season or, um, you know, the coach is about to get sacked quick. Let's bring in the sports psychologist and the sports psych will rev us all up and give us a rah-rah speech and we'll be fixed in an hour. It's like, well, you know, if you think about training, if you do one training session for an hour, you're going to get limited results mm. um, that don't last for very long. So it's that same sort of thing. Like I, I think we can have an, an influence in the short term from a one-off um, a, a one-off workshop, but obviously that's quite limited, and you have to measure your expectations around that. But uh, an effective, the most effective use of sports psychology is an integrated one um, where it's integrated into the rest of the team or the rest of the organization or the squad. Mm, agreed. Yeah. I mean, just with my, like I said, my prior experience, not that I'm a psychologist by any means, but being with an, um, an athlete and kind of going through and talking to some of these and hearing some presentations and trying it out myself. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a lot harder than people think, but it, there's a lot more benefits than people mm-hmm. think as well. Um, so yeah, that's... Uh, all great points there as well. Um, I guess uh, we'll kind of we'll wrap it up here. Uh, so if you just want to tell people where um, they can follow you for, I know you post some information on Instagram or any other social media accounts, um, and then where they can contact you for either um, a consultation or anything like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so our website is um, lifthighperformance.com.au uh, that's the the name of my company is Lift High Performance Consultants um, so we've got online consultations as well as um, we've only got face-to-face ones at our Gold Coast office at the moment but we're hoping Brisbane will open up soon but certainly we've got clients all around the world um, who work with us through video online consultations um, and also we're on Instagram um, at Lift High Performance or my own personal uh, work profile is uh, Rachel Jones Lift HPC. Um, so you can find us there or we're on Facebook as well. Uh, but all of our contact details are on any of those platforms. So feel free to, to message us anywhere there um, and you can book directly through our website as well awesome i'll make sure to put all those in the show notes if you if you send me over those i'll put them yeah, in the show brilliant. notes for everyone but thanks again rachel for being thanks, on Matt. and thanks for all the um information for the podcast no worries at all thanks so much for having me